Honourable. Uh, a very good evening. Welcome to the Edinburgh Book Festival. I'm Peter Guthridge, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the festival Raymond Blanc. Um, it's OBE, should I say? OBE. Uh, you know him for Which his. He's a very confused person, of course, <laughs> being a French Republican, but I'm doing my best to honor this wonderful title. <laughs> You know him for his Michelin stars, you know him for his great restaurants, you know him for his TV work, you know him for his bestsellers. Uh, he's here to talk about uh, Raymond Blanc, A Taste of My Life, which is part autobiography, part recipes, part his meditations on, on, on food, really. I'm sure we'll be talking about lots of other things. Um, I want to thank the sponsors for this event, Circle Cafe, uh, for, for uh, supporting this event. Um, it's going to be the usual kind of event. Uh, I'm going to ask him questions. You're going to have a chance to ask questions. And then he'll be making dinner for 650 of us. <laughs> as simple as that. Et voilà. <laughs> Please welcome Raymond Blanc. Thank you very much. Can I start totally off the wall by asking about that slowest omelette you cooked in Saturday Kitchen? Well, I thought, okay, we live in a world where we have to say more by saying less. And, that, and we are completely exhausted and we're losing in the same way so many values which are important. And if you don't have four minutes to cook a good omelette, life is not worth living. <laughs> I thought. So that's my answer to that. Uh, that challenge, basically, so I didn't take it, basically. And I you had a great style, because, in fact, you had the truffle in your pocket. Of course, yes. So, yes, uh, I'm sorry it was not caught in Scotland, but uh, uh, I had a wonderful uh, truffle in my, my right-hand pocket, and, of course, that added something, je ne sais quoi, on that wonderful <laughs> omelette. <laughs> and my apologies, I forgot to say that it's been signed by Rachel here. My apologies for not introducing her earlier. <laughs> so, Rachel, I hope you get your signs right with my... <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my very best, okay, to put on a good Scottish accent. Yeah. <laughs> well, talking of which, you've, you've been here today and you've been eating in Edinburgh. What do you think of the food in Edinburgh? Well, actually, today <laughs> I'm going to amaze you. We're going to throw me out probably because uh, actually I've eaten in a Japanese restaurant <laughs> <laughs> and, and a very, very good one at it. It's called Oshi. Uh, it's in Rose Street, just not far away from here. Okay, and we just were walking with Paul Levy, who was around, who was a journalist. Okay, and we were walking down there, and looking, so we felt famished. Okay, there were 12 o'clock French, you no, know. and uh, and we 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 just looked at this street, and it was it was not really exciting what I was saying. It was very pubby, it was very, and you knew you wouldn't get a great meal, great little meal. And I was not looking after a star Michelin restaurant, but I was looking for something decent and lovely and light. So. And we looked, and we saw, uh, I, saw I picked up a lady, a lady in her shop, okay, she was... <laughs> absolutely. And uh, just, and I, but what struck, struck me enormously was the way she was about to, uh, the way she was going about her business. She was focused, she was alone in the restaurant, she had about 10 tables, she was completely full. It's always a good sign to see a full restaurant, okay. And I approached and I saw the food, and the food looked fresh, clean, and beautiful. So we sat and we had a lovely little meal, very inexpensive, uh, 40 pounds for two, and we drank three bottles of sake. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a delightful moment outside, okay, it's on the beautiful sky of Edinburgh. 
you've now disappointed us. But uh, next so time I will go to, dog, to, to the dog or the, or the kitchen. Definitely apologize. <laughs> I missed something here. All the restaurateurs not named in this now are going to be very disappointed. You realize that. Um, let's, talk, let's talk about your book a little bit. And, and, and what a wonderful childhood you seem to have. It sounds incredibly um, yeah. pastoral, but also, I mean, what a wonderful um, upbringing. I think um, everyone who has uh, been lucky to be a post-war child, I think has been a very lucky person because I think at that time we had uh, some amazing values, family values. Because for years, of course, there had been the war, so there was no food, there was, there was, the men were at war, okay, there was tremendous misery and, and stress put onto a nation, and the families were disconnected and all over. Well, so post-war, of course, de Gaulle, the first, Monsieur de Gaulle, the General de Gaulle, the first thing he did, okay, come, uh, coming in power, of course, uh, France was completely depleted. It lost so many soldiers. So, of course, make babies, make babies. That was really the thing, okay? So the French oblige, okay? <laughs> and uh, I'm sure the English as well. <laughs> and the French oblige, and we, we basically were a, a family of five children, which actually was a quite a small family. But we, we were so lucky to live in a rural environment and imagine just between two great regions, okay, the Burgundy and the Ragged Jura, two great food and wide region where really food was part of our culture. Okay, uh, so effectively, uh, I was very lucky to live in that, that, that particular space, okay, which was very rural, and where, where basically uh, my mom, uh, I come from a background, very working class background. Uh, my mom was also a very colorful lady called Maman Blanc. Okay, which is very much a hero okay, of that book. Absolutely. Okay, and uh, um, she, she was interested, was a fascinating woman because first she could cook because her mother was a very well-known cook in the, in the department of Franche-Comté. She was called La Mère, La, La Mère Tournier. Okay, so when you call about a mare, so it's like having the Legion d'honneur or having an OBE in cuisine. <laughs> okay, so the grandmother had passed all the skill, of course, to, to, to Maman Blanc. Okay, we was an amazing cook, really an amazing cook. Interestingly enough, you know, my parents were, my mom was a, a guilty Catholic, okay, and, and married, married to a, 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 a communist, my father was a communist atheist who hated God. So imagine what kind, <laughs> what kind of conversation around, and still today, he's 88, she's 87, and they're still arguing about this. But, but at least they're arguing about around a nice piece of food, okay? <laughs> so that's the kind of childhood where food was really the heart of the family and not the, the, not the, not so much the, 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 politics the, the bedroom, but the food itself. And that's where really all of the values that are still applied today, okay, were taught to me at a very early stage. Uh, and if you want me to talk about it, I'll be very happy no, to no, do well, so. I was, I, I was going to ask you more about your mother, obviously, but I'd like to ask you about your father first, actually. And this map that he made for you, this oh, wonderful yes. map, it's yeah. just such a wonderful story. Uh, yes, it's, um, it's again, again, I say, you've got to understand my father built this house, okay? Not only built this house, he broke the stone, okay, and grounded them, okay, simply with his mechanical machines. I remember, because at 12 o'clock at night, it would help him to carry the plots. So that's kind of childhood. And my father also was, so taught me the value of honesty, value of respect, okay, and those are two important values 
that uh, basically I've really stamped my life and hopefully I'll try to lead by those values. Uh, he, but he was also a great gardener. He was an amazing gardener. You've got to understand at the age of seven, he made me taste earth. <laughs> he brought, he scooped out a, a, a handful of earth that was, okay, because I was stalling in the garden. I was unpaid labor, so to speak. And my father was, was a great gardener, but he was also a great project manager. I mean, he didn't do very much. He, after all, he was, why not? He had five kids, come on, in the garden. And you must know, I don't know if each of you, who is having a garden? Who is, who is having a garden? Ah, see, because of you having a garden, which is fantastic, you know it's a lot of work. And if you have a big garden, we're talking about a two-acre garden here, because that's typical French house. The French is very simple, sir. They have the house, and around the house, you've got the, the garden. 99% is about growing vegetables, fruits, whatever, herbs, etc. And you've got 2%, which is a horrible little lawn that they call the gazon, full of dandelions, okay. <laughs> okay. Whereas in England, it was when I arrived, no, when I arrived in England, many, many moons ago, it was exactly the contrary. You had the most beautiful lawn, immaculate, and then you would go and see the, the, the potagers, <laughs> and then you, you were seriously frightened. <laughs> okay. so, so, of course, so I, I worked very much in that garden every day, and I used to hate the garden. Because my friends were playing football, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, and whilst my friends were playing football, I was working in the garden. In the garden, you have to, it's, 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 it's infinite. The work is, is, there's always something to be done. There's only three months during the year where it's easy, it's, it's when you do nothing, it's when it's covered with <laughs> yeah. snow. Okay, and in Franche-Comté, you had snow up to there, okay, in the Jura. Okay, so effectively, it was. December, January, February, that's where it was blissful and I could play. But you couldn't play football because there was so much snow anyway. But uh, it was really, that's where I really connected with the soul. Okay, that gastronomy should take its roots and its values from the soul. And one soul, one our soul, not somebody else. That means I never tasted a peach until I was 14 years of age because all the food was completely regional, okay? Mm, yeah. And of course, what I've learned, I used to hate the garden, of course, because you had to remove the stone, which seemed to grow out of that garden, the grass, hoe, hoe between the rows, hoe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hoe, <laughs> okay, hoe between the rows, you know, and then water the bloody plants, and, and went on and on, and when you saw it, it was all over us, it was these huge tons of beans, it was a cottage industry. It was that garden intended at full intent, okay, to feed the whole family for all the winter months, which we did. Okay, that means all was, then you had to top and tail and, and pod and all these tons. And then I would give that to my mom, would, would, add, add, would bring a simple creative act of cooking and then store and water sight. If you, you know, today, I, went, I was to my mom just about uh, a week ago, I was in France because I took some holidays which were absolutely marvelous. And I always end up regularly to see the old lady and my papa, okay? And I went to the cellar to fetch a nice bottle of wine. And sure, you've got to understand, the cellar used to cover the whole space of the house. And that was a big house that he built, my father. Okay, it was a five-bedroom house with, with walls thick like that. And underneath, completely covered Okay, it was a full-on cellar. So imagine, and you could see these thousand bottles of pickles, of preserves, and so on, all the fruit of my labor. 
and then I felt quite proud. <laughs> so, but what truly what I understood is really the connection with the food, the understanding the mood and the cycle of the season. That again, that gastronomy, which we have a little bit lost in England, in Great Britain, and even in Scotland, with all the beauty, the bounty, we have everything in, in Scotland. We truly are, are so incredibly, uh, how do you call that? Um, uh, God has been kind. There's so, mm. ma so, so many beautiful seafood, so much beautiful beef, fish, and all, and wonderful fruit. I'm going, actually, I'm doing a television program at the moment where I'm going to pick your mushrooms <laughs> very, very soon. So you'll see me on a hunting, okay, in Scotland, in a little, in some friends of mine. It was a, there's a whole program about uh, wild mushrooms and game. So I'm going to shoot my grouse, of course. <laughs> If you, unless you're on the face of me, and don't ever trust a Frenchman with a gun. <laughs> so, so it's really, but really what I was told is all of those values which I try to apply. And of course, respect food. The first thing I apply in my kitchen with my young people is immediately, is you respect food. Immediately, you never throw anything away. So my attitude is very Scottish in a way. You know, <laughs> ne, ne, don't, don't throw anything away. You, you value food. And actually, I always remember my father, although he was an atheist, okay, uh, he used to, he would buy a big loaf of bread, three kilogram loaf of bread. And it was always, it, you never bought it fresh. It was at least one day old. Because, of course, imagine fresh bread, five kids, in no time it would go. Okay, so, so he would have this big loaf of bread, two day, one day or two days old, and then he would take it and he would do a cross. You know, at the, at the, on the bottom of the base of the bread. And it's always, but you never dare to, to ask the old man because he had a filthy temper. <laughs> Unlike Mama Blanc, was a very sweet lady. He was a tough, tough guy, okay? So I didn't want to, to ask his dubious question. But I asked him by the age of 20. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said, are you stupid, Raymond? Of course. For me, it's a simple way. I, that's the only way I could think of to show my respect of to earn the bread, because the bread is something you earn, okay, so to show my respect. And by the way, I was not we were not allowed to help ourselves with bread, okay, until the age of about 16, 17, when we could ourselves earn our own bread. So bread to us was really <laughs> very serious business. No? Yeah, yeah. But what I mean, what about the you, you mentioned? You touched on it then. What about all the all the things you went out to find for yourself in the <laughs> forest and by the rivers? Yes, yes uh, actually, the best, the most beautiful present of my father. My father was a good man, but he was a hard man. Uh, he was himself a byproduct, a byproduct of a generation who who really had a tough time. Okay, and he was really a very hard man. But, but having said that, I think deep underneath, he was a, a true romantic because um, one of the best presents I've ever received was, um, you know, you've got to understand the house was surrounded by a huge forest. I mean, mega forest. If you go in the Jura Mountains, okay, around here, it's, it's thousands and thousands of acres of forest. So imagine the bounty. So every season, would bring first the wild asparagus, okay, all the berries, all the, the, the seps, the, the girol, the trompette de la mort, okay, all, all, all this bounty of things. And my father gave the most beautiful present I had was an amazing calendar drawn by hand, and not just, not just, not just 
the but drawn by hand, but with all the tash. The tash, the tash in French, I don't think so, the what? No, 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 tash. A tash is a, is a secret place where this mushroom grow. And you get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, you should make sure you're not followed by anyone. Okay. <laughs> Ser serious business, absolutely. <laughs> and, and you go deep in that forest, you know, and to find, of course, invariably lose yourself, okay? And, and, and find this, and you would see this, because we all know that this is amazing part of the forest, covered with either petit gris or black well, trumpet. Asparagus, I mean, you talk beautifully uh, about asparagus. Well, wild asparagus to me, the two most beautiful hunts of my life was um, wild asparagus and the frogs. <laughs> um, the, the latest being the most romantic for, for a while, not, for, not through the whole process. <laughs> what I mean by that, the wild asparagus was really amazing because uh, the wild asparagus l likes its habitat, likes to be in the most, in a, in, in a coom, okay? Usually you find them in a coom and where there's a bit of water, okay? And they love the light, the warmth. Okay, so effectively what you are looking for is a coom with a clearing so the sun just pull all of its light over, over these millions of... So, so you, you, when you go in the forest looking for this coom, suddenly you see a clearing. I say, my God, and you run, and you run. And you say, nothing, oh, nothing. Okay, and that happened 50 times or more. And suddenly you see another clearing and a coom, and you run, and suddenly you see the most incredible spectacles. And that you must, is something to behold. Okay, because our forests, like I must tell you, were like Walt Disneyland, okay? It's true, there was, there was no chemicals, those forests. I mean, if you see the berries were growing onto the trees in millions of ruby grapes falling down. It was amazing. Wild mushrooms were all over. We, bring, we were bringing sometimes 40 kilograms of wild mushrooms. I mean, the harvest was incredible. This was a business. I was a rich young man at the age of seven, for God's sake. <laughs> Because you sold them on the side of the street, you sold them in markets, you sold them in restaurants, and I can show you the best buyers at the restaurants. It's not the marketplace. If you go and fetch some wild asparagus, please, don't sell them on the side of the road. <laughs> You're going to be a lousy price, not on the marketplace. Go and see a restaurateur, and I bet he will give you a better price. But of course, you know very well the price is charged himself to the customer. So everyone is going to make a profit. But anyway, for going back to this wild asparagus, so suddenly you would see something which was the most beautiful picture of food in my, my food world, world of food. And you would see this water at the base, well, this million, billions of little asparagus. Maybe no, not hundreds of, but let's say tens of thousands. <laughs> <laughs> my mathematics are not very good. <laughs> tens of thousands. Just, and these little green little stems and, and the, their head pushing towards the sun. And the sun clearing, cutting the sun, cutting some beautiful light. And that was, and you, you, you were a rich young man. So immediately you would cut some hazelnut tree, you know, stalks, okay, wood, okay? Mm -hmm. You were invariably always two in the forest, you never by yourself, okay? And then you would take, cut these bundles, bundle them up, and we'd come back home, you know, with, <laughs> and, and sometimes five miles, 10 miles, because, and sometimes you even get lost in those forests at night, your parents will worry. You stay in the forest at night, you a big bed of moss, no problem. 
So it was really, a, for me, it was a, a deep connection with food and all the values that are all dear and I try to teach my young people, okay? That mean authenticity, beauty, purity, and so on. The frogs, ah! Yeah, the, we were having a nice frog until you came along. <laughs> the frogs, it's a, that was amazing because my father knew all his food knowledge from his grandfather that was called, tradition was always passed on those values, okay? And uh, my father, Around the early May, I didn't know exactly when it was, but he knew, okay, and he would look at the moon, it would be a beautiful, quiet, very warmish evening, okay, no wind whatsoever, there were all sorts of criteria by which the frogs would be there or would not be there, okay, and then suddenly say, Raymond, take a, take a sack, a, a big bag, mm -hmm. okay, two big bags, actually, not just one, two big bags of, uh, you know, this is not plastic, but that's a, that would break under the weight, but jute, you know? Yeah, jute, yeah, jute. yeah. Thank you, okay. And then he would walk through the field in moonlight with the father in front. And you'd follow the old man, okay, and then go over the, the barriers and so on, and say, you wonder, where am I going, you know? So you wait, okay. And then suddenly, in that moonlight, in that quiet night, which is almost, almost day-like, okay, you would hear the frogs. No. And you hear a chorus of frogs. And the closer you came, it's amazing in that full, beautiful evening, still in the full moon on, and that chorus, that symphony of frogs. And you knew you were about to give a serious, a serious dinner on that night. <laughs> okay. And it was amazing because you would suddenly be by, there was a lake, and by the lake, that was the biggest orgy I've ever seen <laughs> of these thousands of frogs clumped up together, you know. <laughs> and all what you had to do, you know, <laughs> I, my father opened the bag and I picked them. Just, uh, and of course, that's where the Romans started to, and stopped. Because, of course, what I had to do is go. <laughs> and actually, uh, uh, one of the loveliest presents I've received from a lovely young British person, Mark, Mark Peregrine. He hand-painted, it was my 50th birthday, and he hand-painted some, some, some water-colored, you know water-colored? Okay, so, uh, 12 little frogs all on their little, <laughs> and, and with a little blanket, and you could see the stain. <laughs> so now, I, you'll be glad to know I've stopped doing frogs because I, no, completely, absolutely true. Uh, I think the, the process by which they are being killed is totally inhuman and that should uh, completely. So uh, there should be some better way to, to stun them, okay, first, to kill them first. But there's not all these still, they still cut by half. And you can see them crawling the day after. Oh. <laughs> 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 yes. or, or you should at least. <laughs> but at the time, you didn't know, you know, there was something. There was something very rough about this time as well. There was certainly no hypocrisy about food, but equally, it's fuzzy because my father taught us such a strong values about respect to the life of an animal, but it seems that the frog escapes, <laughs> escapes that rule completely. <laughs> he must have hated frogs, probably. But, <laughs> but when you were about 17, you, you, you first got into the food business by going to work in a, in a brasserie. In, uh, in, the, in your time? That That's correct? right, yes. I, uh, 
I was, it's interesting how life goes. At the time, children didn't choose what they wanted to do in life. It was either parents and mostly the teachers. And because my, my parents were working class people, okay, they never went to, to high school. So it was the teachers who decided what you should be doing. And they somehow decided I should be a draftsman. The problem of being a, with dra being a draftsman, you have to have a mathematical mind, you have, to be a, you have to be rational, you have to have logic, which none of, of those things are had. <laughs> and more than that, I hated circles, I hated triangles, I hated anything which was symmetric. I loved things which were all over the place. Okay, and I was in that college, you know, the Lycée de Horlogerie de, de, de Besançon, who trained some of the very best engineers, architects, and draftsman, okay, and I said no. Because really, I wanted to touch my little, I knew each of us have got a talent, all of us. And if we look hard enough for it, it was naive maybe, but that's what I thought at the time. I wanted to find my talent. And one thing I, I fear the most, mediocrity. Because my father, for example, had the most amazing gift. He, could, he was horloger, okay? he made watches. But on his spare time, he made jewelry with everything, with, wood, with gold, with, uh, with uh, uh, any material. And he could trace gold like Buccellati. But because he was a working class person, he never dared to have his own business. And that man became a very bitter man because he never achieved his own talent. And I saw that. And I said, never. It's never going to happen to me. So I'm going to find my talent. Uh, whatever. Because we all of us have. So, and to, so I stopped the college. And I looked for my talent. I became a nurse in the hope of becoming uh, at least Mother Teresa. <laughs> but, but it never happened. And actually, it was a very fantastic uh, moment. Because it was, uh, that moment was in Besançon at uh, L'Hôpital Saint-Anne. And that was very formative to me. Because I was working into a, 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 a ward, which was leukemia. Young people basically came to die. We had about 20 young people. And I saw during a whole year die about seven young people. And uh, it was, believe me, that was, that was, and I, and I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't deal with the, the sheer emotional, uh, because you could see these young kids, you know, one air would grow and they would feel they were reprieved. And then, of course, you knew very well they would go back home and then come back to the hospital. And, and, uh, and of course, the second part of it was the matrons, the Catholic matrons. My God! <laughs> ah. Oh! Because that was something. But at least the hospitals were clean, that's for sure. I remember, <laughs> I cleaned them myself. <laughs> okay. So is that, I, I got sacked, okay, it didn't quite work out. And then I, I, was, I, I got caught with a nurse, okay, somewhere where I shouldn't be. And the Catholic matron didn't quite like that, so I had to go. But eventually, I saw what I wanted to do in my life. After many jobs, I worked in a factory, which was the most dehumanizing moment where you're a number. You're nothing. You're absolutely nothing. You want, you're making a number. You clock in and you clock out. And that was really a wake-up call, okay? And uh, I did lots of things. I thought I could draw, so I went to the bazaar. But, oh, my God, I saw some people who could really draw. Okay, so I saw a lot of things, and eventually I saw what my destiny would be. It was in the center of my hometown called Besançon, and I saw that amazing place, a full August, okay, with a beautiful evening with the centenary trees, and there was a beautiful terrace of a restaurant, and the maître d'hôtel, you know, tens of maître d'hôtel, all dressed like in black tie, you know, bow ties and all, back and carving the chapon, flambing the pancakes, and I said, oh, mon Dieu. 
and 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 I saw you know the lovers holding hands saying I love you toujours forever. That's the business I want to be in. That's the business, but I want to be the chef. But life didn't didn't happen that way. Uh, to cut it short, I was basically I had an interview by this old man, okay, Monsieur Paul, Monsieur Smith, uh, with his striped suit, square jaws, grey eyes. And he looked at me and said, look, you're too old. I was 21 at the time, 21. You're too old to be a chef. I mean, those kids start at 14 years of age. They clock in 16 hours a day. You are too old. But I can take you as a cleaner. <laughs> so, so I took the gratefully, kissed his hands, <laughs> took him uh, the position as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a cleaner, and I cleaned that house. And it looked like the Galerie des Glaces, because it was a huge mirror. Everything sparkled. The toilets were amazing. <laughs> Everything was absolutely a piece of dust were eradicated. And, and it was clean, it was beautiful. And of course, the Med Hotel loved me. Uh, everyone loved me. Okay, because I didn't have to clean behind me. Okay, so then I was promoted to be a, uh, promoted to be a, uh, <coughs> a, a glass washer. A glass washer, yeah. It was a big promotion. <laughs> big. You've got to understand. The French were drinking at least four or five glasses at a time for every lunch. All big, hand, some of the glasses were as high as that, all hand-blown. You could almost bend them, they were so beautiful. So every drag of wine coming back, smells them right down, all the olfactive. And by the time, of course, I was dreaming about food, I, was, I had nightmare about food, I was already making hundreds of dishes, okay, so and so on, okay. And I was, so I was testing this. Smelling this one, writing where the grape came from and so on, guessing where it was, and learning about food and wine. And then, of course, I developed speed in cleaning those glasses, and they sparkled again. The sommelier loved me. And I was a very popular young man. Okay, and the boss loved me too as well, because uh, <laughs> I cut down the, the breakage by 50%. Hey, when you think of a glass, like that, it must have cost at least 20 pounds, okay, and you, you, you break at least 10 a night. Okay, my wage I see made sense. Okay, and then I was I was given oh the most important moment of my life, I was given a waiter's jacket. Not just any waiter, a runner's jacket, but not just any jacket either. It was a beautiful purple jacket with a golden epaulette, and I ran with the dishes, and I ran from the kitchen to the restaurant, and from the kitchen to the restaurant. <laughs> I was never able to approach a guest, never. Okay. But then I could taste the sauces. <laughs> so it was one step closer to the domain where I wanted to be, the kitchen. <coughs> so then, six months after, I was given a proper comedy job, so I was succeeding. Every night I was cooking for my friends. I was reading every single book, food, religion, food, sex, food, hospitality, food, family, food, chemistry, food, science, food, nutrition, food, everything. In, I was obsessed by, by food, but not just food, oh, my little belly, all I earn is for you. I was connecting with food, with every single part of our life. And that's the gravest mistakes we've done in this country, to stop doing that. Because effectively, to, 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 to take food and, 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 and ground it down okay, to a simple you know, uh, commodity, and which only values and virtues are cheapness, Okay, coming all from industry and so on, and cheapness and, and, and how it looks, I think that's seriously wrong. And I think we've learned how much 
it has cost this nation to have made those terrible choices, and now at last we are reconnecting with our food values and food connects with everything. Of course, food connects with our, our farming, our farming our communities, it connects with our, what has, it creates which kind of society we're going to have tomorrow, okay? Look today, I, I remember in England when I came, in England the first time, hello love, oh my God, I'm gonna be very popular here. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you so, oh, very nice. Okay, anyone was lovely, everyone had a bit of time. Now, wow, 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 wow. You know, I think we, we, uh, we have lost ourselves a little bit. We have created a society which is about winning, winning at any cost. But there is a cost, there are consequences to the choices we've made. Okay, and it's wonderful to see now that at last we are now reconnecting with the true values of food. Okay, and I can see very quickly uh, gastronomy being completely reborn. And when I talk about gastronomy, I'm talking about a simple tomato salad as much as a three-star Michelin meal. Okay, and I think really now, I think we have a wonderful opportunities because very soon we'll have to make some choice. Which food chain tomorrow? We, have, we don't have one crisis at the moment. We've got at least five. We had our financial crisis, which is not over. Okay, and we know the, the cost of that, you know, those, those. And the same, drawn by the same irresponsibilities. Then the next crisis, of course, is environment. Okay, and that needs as many trillions of money to somehow, to give, to hand out something to our kids, which will have some kind of value. Okay, then the next one, of course, is which food chain tomorrow? Because tomorrow, today, we have to decide, is it, are we going to have an industry which is based mostly on intensive farming? That means more of the same, continue, continue to, continuing the pollution, this stuff. Is it organic? Or is it, why not? And that's a, that's a big one. Because those guys are ready. Genetically modified food and transgenetically modified food are ready. The Monsanto have invested billions of, of money, of, of dollars, in creating an industry which can grow carrots in the deserts. Answering all the world anger, they have all the answers. So that's going to be tempting. So that's the kind of choices we are going to do tomorrow. And these shows as well will have tremendous consequences as well. What I was, what I was talking about. So <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you talk about is fine by us. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just so it's, it's going to be some big choices to be made very soon by all of us. Actually, at that point, you've been very patient with me, so I'm going to, as it's such a big audience, I'm going to invite questions from the audience, if only to give Rachel a bit of a rest, because her fingers must be falling off over there. Um, so if you've got a question, stick your hand in the air. There's a couple of microphones roaming around, um, and we'll go from there. Gentleman on the front row here. Wait, just a sec, wait for the mic. You mentioned your cruelty to killing frogs. What, what, what are you, what's your thoughts on uh, foie gras? <laughs> ah. There okay. is a section in the book about this. <laughs> yes, there's a whole section about, about it. So it's such a large subject. I would rather talk about it privately with you at one stage. <laughs> uh, okay, the foie gras we take, yes, okay, I'll try to answer it as quickly as possible. It's because it's an enormous, first it's part of my French culture. With foie gras, not at home because we didn't have that kind of money, but it's very much part of, uh, you could understand it's about half a million, okay, of, uh, of small producers in the southwest of France who live on that as well, okay? Uh, but I agree with you, the process is 
is not as it should be what it is. At the moment, I'm battling, so you know that. But first, we have the farm we choose, our Comité Renaissance, which is, Comité Renaissance is a, uh, four different farms who have some, some incredible strong ethics, okay, in monitoring, in ensuring that the animal doesn't suffer. But I want to go beyond that. And really now, the next stage I'm going to do is to go to these farms. I want a complete stress, stress test to be made to each, to each of those animals before the feed, during the feed, beyond the feed. To measure, it's very easy. It's just a, like you, if you're under stress, you've got hormone, hormone cortisol level which goes high, and you can easily, I'm not a doctor, but it's something like that, okay, and you can easily monitor it. I want that. Then I will decide whether I take foie gras or stop foie gras. Uh, but meanwhile, what I have done is to ensure, of course, that I have the best foie gras. Of course, I pay 30% more. Okay, than, that means all the, the goose, the ducks, are hand, hand, uh, hand uh, uh, gavés à la main, not in a machine, when you have sometimes a tube coming to their stomach, pumping two kilograms at a time every three or four hours. That is disgusting. Okay, but so it's, we talk about foie gras, but we also should we talk about chicken? Should we talk about duck? You know, in, in England, you don't have one single duck which is free ranch. Not one. Give me one. I'll be very happy because I'll take it. <laughs> Not one. Chicken, now, of course, we all know that chicken, battery chicken, will be stopped okay, by 2012, so that's one step forward. But there's a lot of hypocrisy. You now, we've got to face as well. The problem is, it's so complicated because for 40 years, Okay, so gover successive governments have told us it's okay to buy cheap food. Okay, and of course the consequences are enormous. We've talked about it briefly. But if I'm a working class person, I earn 2,000 quid a month. I've got three kids and I've got a mortgage. And I've been told for the last 50 years it's okay to have cheap food. Imagine the change, enormous, because that makes in my budget maybe 100 quid more a month. 800 pounds is a lot of money. So I think to change our habits are going to take some time because, so it's going to be a, but we are, we are reconnecting with our food culture. We are reconnecting with our regions. We are reinventing our region. And it's wonderful to see really this creativity which goes on across Great Britain, whether it's Scotland, Ireland, Wales, England, and all. Okay, to see that, that reinvention of, of, of cheese, of cheese making, the craft cheese making, uh, vegetables and so on. These varietals are, are, at last, we're interested in varietals. We're interested in the goodness of the food. So I think it's, it's happening. But of course, you cannot expect a miracle after 40 years of ignorance. Because we, it was, we took the easy way. We are as responsible as those governments. Okay, we have told us it's okay to eat cheap food because we, do, we wanted that cheap food as well. So we must also acknowledge that we were a bit guilty as well. But we can change everything as well. All can be changed. Okay, thank you. I can't see you. There you are. Yeah, you've got the mic there. Just wait for the mic. Um, you have such a passion for food. I just wondered, is there any food that you really don't like? <laughs> Good well, question. Obviously, I love Agis. <laughs> and I've tested like this many a time, okay? I don't particularly like uh, uh, Mars bar, uh, fried, deep fried in chocolate. 
Um, I think there are other ways, noble ways to eat Mars bars. <laughs> um, I love, yes, I love old food because we were taught to eat good old food. But, uh, you know, I had a few, a few number of food experiences, for example, in Japan. Actually, I ended up in a Korean restaurant in Japan, and the octopus, big fat octopus, was killed in front of me, chopped in front of me, put onto my plate, it was wriggling, okay? Then a bit of lime juice, okay? And a little bit of sake on the top, and it was wriggling even more. Then they put a bit of sesame oil. You know why they put the sesame oil? It's to prevent the suckers to stuck to your throat. Okay? Uh, <laughs> so if you have a sucker stuck to your throat, you're rather, you're rather stuck, okay? So, 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 uh, so that was and a bit chewy, and, and, and you could feel them. Uh, so that food, maybe I, I mean, li live monkey's brain is not my thing either. Uh, dog, not really, because I love them too much. But rabbit are fine, because the French, the Frenchy, no, we, we see our food differently than the British way. Every pet is food, okay? So, so, <laughs> but, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but uh, uh, I was also in Japan, um, uh, and I t did some, t had some terrible, I see some terrible things. Uh, three of them, quickly. Uh, Gaisha brought a beautiful, ball of a uh, crystal ball of uh, glass ball with water and there was millions of little silver things into it tiny little eels and that season lasts three days only of these small how do you call them electric eels yes electric eels yeah but yeah. they've got a particular name well Elvis Sorry, is yes, right. yes. okay and the uh, <coughs> so I put that on the ball and she took a beautiful net into this wonderful ball put the eels into the ball and then she put the sake and the rice vinegar and started to jump. And then you have to drink like that. And the whole thriller is a thrill. You don't chew. You just swallow. And the whole thrill is to have the things. You have to go away. You want to run. That was, that was, that was, that was a bit borderline. That's we put bringing food to, a, it's like deviationism. You know, taking the leather and all, okay? Uh, you know, sex and food, you, you can't go too far, too beyond. And then that was carried to, a, to an extreme. Uh, also, had an idea of Kobe beef, and that was really a terrible moment in my life. And Paul, there, was not with me, but he, uh, it's, it's, that's the story, the story's in the book. You know, Kobe beef, I'd read such a beautiful stories about Kobe beef. And the stories went on such as, it was this beautiful beef, perfectly clean, washed every day, soaked every day. Sake would be given to him, okay, and, and, and beer, okay, to calm him down. Then massage, the mother's geisha, three or four geishas would massage that wonderful golden beef, okay, apparently to spread the fat within the tissues. And those nimble, nimble fingers just going on all over this amazing golden beef. Worshipping him, okay, worshipping him like a god. And that's the story I heard. So when I went to Japan for a whole month and a half, cooking in the best restaurant in Japan, the first thing I wanted to do when I went to Kobe is to see the, 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 the beef immediately. And 
they always refuse me. They, well, as soon as I ask a question, they were saying yes, because they always tell you yes, 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 yes. But they, you know, yes, doesn't, yes doesn't mean yes over there. <laughs> so, so, let's see we do business. <laughs> it means something else. But anyway, it doesn't mean no either. But <laughs> so, so I and eventually, and I insisted, okay, said now, okay. So I made my own arrangement, okay, to see, okay, see his farm. That was a sobering experience. Because, uh, it's, so I was imagining all these beautiful cattle, you know, and the geishas all over the place, and the bee, and so on. And then what I saw was frightening. All the beef was actually effectively, effectively uh, in, in stables, so there no space whatsoever. And of course, for good reason, the whole idea of the bon, for good reason, Japan has got no space. They can have, it's all vertical, there's, there's no space, all is stacked up. Okay, so we don't have these large fields that we have here, that, like we have here. So effectively, in order, and, and, and cattle was introduced at a very late stage, okay, at, in the 1850s, something like that, eh? very late, okay, because before, you see, the, the, the Japanese were very much vegetarian, or fish, no fish, or, but no, not meat. There was no meat before 18th century. But the emperor decided basically they should have meat, okay? And of course, there's no space, so they grow them. And they created a certain mix of short horn with a, with a, to create a, a particular variety of beef, which is totally succulent, but it's fed with grain, not with herb. And if you feed uh, cattle with, 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 uh, with grain, at one stage, your stomach explodes. <laughs> the, the liver explodes. <coughs> so when you know that, it's pretty sobering. No man by the foie gras. It's the more, even worse. Okay? <laughs> no, it's just as bad anyway. Uh, so, so, and I saw this thing, and then what I saw, which followed, and I don't know if they were, if they were challenging me, they slaughtered the animals. And that was the worst carnage I've ever seen. And at the end, on the beef, and you can smell the guts, the blood was flowing in front of the live animal. It was, that was that day. Was a, and then they came with a beautiful plate with a little piece of beef, which was still twinkling, warm and smoking. You know, and they made me eat it. And of course, as a good Frenchman, yes, sir. Excellent, thank you. <coughs> <laughs> so, so, so that was also an experience which was so in, in, interesting, and um, um, uh, but there was many food experience uh, in my life, of course, because I'm a chef and I love food. Uh, but those probably were the worst. <laughs> okay, another question. Up at the back there. Keep your hand in there, if you would, sir. Thanks. Um, let me see the mic. Can you bring this friend here? Thank you. You're uh, as captivating as ever to, to see in, in person. I'm over here. Yeah, he's up at the, he's up I had, the back. I had two sort of quick, quick questions. One was you talked about the tough choices we have to make regarding agricultural policy. Um, I, thought, I wonder if you had any thoughts specifically about seafood, because so often we hear that some of the, the, the finest dishes, sea bass or monkfish, aren't sustainable and that we have to you know, look for alternatives. And the other question was, I know you obviously like uh, wine with, with food, but I wondered if you had a place, place in your heart for whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I'll answer the second question, second, that's a simpler one. <laughs> of course, I, I love a good whiskey. But I, to, I, to be honest with you, obviously I was raised on cognac, so cognac still remains for me the, the, the drink, and I'll be completely honest, 
the drink. Uh, and if you really want to please me, a lovely bottle of cognac, you know. <laughs> There's one I was offered uh, by my, my wife, a wonderful uh, bottle, which was, and she had a sense of humor. And she's not English, she's Russian, okay? Uh, half Russian, half German. And she, and she gave me the best present I had was a bottle of cognac, 18, number 1812. And you know, you know what 1812 is? It's Waterloo! <laughs> <laughs> so I half enjoyed it so much. <laughs> uh, but of course, I do love good whiskey, but I, I, would, I wouldn't claim to be a, an authority on whiskey, sir, but uh, it certainly counts, okay, very, very well offered in the restaurant of the Manoir Quatre Saisons, okay, to our guests. The first question, the, the first question on, uh, on the fish. Interestingly enough, the Manoir Quatre Saisons is the only restaurant in Great Britain which is certified MSC. That's fascinating. I mean, of all the restaurants, Michelin star restaurants, which should effectively, effectively put the ethical values and sustainability values okay, at the forefront of gastronomy, don't. That means, yes, it's for years, governments have avoided taking those decisions. Because, of course, if you tell your, your fishing working force, that you've got to put quotas, cutting them down quotas by 20%, that's their livelihood. And for years, governments have always avoided that. For two reasons, of course, they are voters. They vote, and if you displease, if you bring down quota we should, that we should have done 50 years ago, no, because they knew what we, what's happening now, they knew because the, 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 the Fish population was already monitored 30, 40 years ago, and we knew through this industrial fishing we were about to hit a wall. Not only would be destroying all of our stocks, but equally destroying all the marine bottom because of the fishing practices, which were completely industrial. So today, I think there's quite an, a good thing which is happening because. The MSC now work with the MCS, work with Greenpeace, work with Sustains. So now there's some good policies. And equally, uh, Seafood Scotland, for example, uh, have done some excellent initiative, okay? Uh, and that's also happening in Devonshire as well, in really monitoring okay, and ensuring that basically we don't overfish our seeds. Is it too late? I'm not sure, because there's still, there's some place, we receive such a conflicting information so you never know what's what. So according to who you listen, it's all right. The fish population will replenish, but I don't believe so. I really, at the moment, I'm not in the one to really believe that. We need really to create some stringent policies and, f and really for the MSC to have even more so, more powers, okay? And government regulates even more so the fish. And that means as well, maybe cutting down on the quotas because at the end, what is the terrible thing? It's better to suffer a bit now rather than to face a very bleak future where, where fishing really won't exist. So I think this, this policy should be taken now and boldly in order to have for the fishermen to, to still to be there in 20 years, 30 years time. But if we monitor very well the fishing industry, I think it it can, it can be successful. We, we've seen that the stock can actually re, re, rebreed themselves very quickly. So I think if we monitor that and we are disciplined enough and not greedy, 
I think we, we, I know, it's a complicated question. I, I couldn't answer it all myself, but uh, in my own little way, I try to do as much as I can within my own business. Uh, first, all the fish, maybe I'm privileged because, of course, Manoir Quatre Saisons, you know very well the, the price. Uh, <laughs> you can sell a fish a lot of money, so of course you've got the best fish, which is rod coat, gilt net coat, okay, or whatever. It's the best fish, it's the best in season. But again here, if you ask every customer here, size of a dove sole, where does the sole come from, what spawning time means, what spawning time means, etc. Very few people would answer. And actually, if I was asking the same question to chefs, I can tell you there are very few chefs who would be able to answer and understand the meaning of taking a small fish and cooking it, or, or taking, it, taking a fish which is spawning, etc. So I think now we're reconnecting with those values. I think there's, there's some exciting change happening, but we're all part of those changes. We all have a voice. We all can help, okay, at creating really a, a, a food world, okay, which is, which is, I don't know, which is more responsible. And so our kids, basically, we give something to our kids, and that's really the whole idea of it all. Sorry, I'm not, this was the most proficient. I, I wish uh, I could be, uh, uh, you know, you cannot know everything. I, I very in, interested and fascinated, by, uh, always been involved in those issues, but they're so complicated and so complex, you know, uh, that uh, I, I cannot answer them fully, and I hope you know, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll forgive me for that. Okay, thank you. There's somebody there in the third row. Yeah. Hi there. Uh, I very much enjoyed your uh, series, The Restaurant, and uh, I think it was one of the best things that uh, TV has done recently. Are you going to do any more, and how are the people doing that you helped uh, in the earlier series? Ah. <laughs> okay, there we are. Uh, <laughs> yes, we are doing, uh, we have finished the last, uh, uh, another program, which will be very different. I'll be much more hands-on. I want to be close, because I hated that idea of this this stupid studio, you know, and me acting like a wise man, some kind of a Buddha who dispenses his wisdom, you know. You know, uh, that means now it's much more reality, real, real, and responding to problem immediately. Okay, so, so I think you'll have a far better program, far more punchy, far more interesting, far more dramatic, uh, uh, and actually more intelligent and more real. Uh, as far as, uh, so that's finished, that's put to bed, and that's going to come out later on this year. Meanwhile, the latest uh, winners uh, who are Michel and Russell have opened their restaurant, a beautiful little restaurant, a beautiful pub, okay, by Marlowe. And they, we already have, they have, they, that is their restaurant, they have already operated for the last uh, two months and they're doing very well. Sure, it has been a shock, because they had no idea. They thought, you know, oh, being a chef patron, you taste a few sauces, and this, uh, <laughs> but uh, they have realized, really, uh, and the so we're doing a lead program. A lead program is going to come out the 7th of September on BBC Two, I think at 8 o'clock or something like that, on, on their opening, all the struggles they went through opening their restaurant. So I think that's wonderful because when you, uh, you will have basically the program followed by the winners, we hopefully will train the next guys. Okay, so it will be interesting. It's been a, a good little program. And 
so you have and then that will be followed by by a new the restaurant. And so you watch. <laughs> <laughs> and and the previous one, or should I not ask that? Is ah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <coughs> yes, Jeremy and Jane. I, I found the most beautiful little pub. Really a million pound business in the most wonderful little town of Thames, which was a marketplace as well. It was perfect, close the motorway, completely stunning with character, 17th century Tudor, everything. Tudor is 17th century, correct? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nearly. <laughs> what do you mean, nearly? It's ah, a bit earlier. A bit earlier. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that would do it. <laughs> Sorry, my English history is not the best. <coughs> and uh, and they, they didn't love it. They didn't love the restaurant I was giving them. It's like, you know, Madame giving Monsieur a beautiful uh, present and <laughs> don't like it. Rolls Royce, no, don't like Rolls Royce, no, no. So, so effectively, the, the, rest, the, the first venture after eight months, Jane loved it and maybe Jeremy was definitely not into it. Okay, so for that reason, they decided to create their own restaurant, okay, uh, which are looking at the moment to open and, and but I, I didn't quite understand the logic of that because if you can have 30% okay, of stake in a business where you have to put nothing into it, why don't you wait three years? Okay, well, it's not perfect, but you make your capital and then <laughs> you can hope. But that's the choice they have made and that you have to respect it. But having said that, believe me, what we are doing here is almost impossible because what television does is insidious. It's telling you that you can be a great restaurateur, you can be Raymond Blanc in no time, in six months, uh, virtual television, you can be that great guy. It is all wrong. That means we're doing a fantastic program, a good little program, but then I inherit, okay, of two people who basically are not professionals, and you must understand, it takes the best part of 10 to 15 years to train a consumer professional will know enough about business, about legal issues, about ethics, about training, about, you know, you've got to be an expert in everything. Okay, so, so to us as young people to open a restaurant, it is a very demanding process. And you will see that process, you'll see the stress on which these young people really are, and of course they are supported by us beyond. But they made it, and that's bravo to them. They've got a wonderful little place called The Cheerful Soul, and uh, I think they have a winner here. So, thank you. <laughs> and sadly, the, the Cheerful Soul is probably a good place to end, but unfortunately we do have to end. Um, Raymond, I'm, I'm sorry you've been so quiet, but thank you. For <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you all That's for coming me. along. Raymond will be signing copies of, it, of his books in the, in the signing tent, which is next door that way. Um, thank you all for being such a lively audience, but please, for Raymond Block, thank, you, thank him for such a great event. Thank you. Let me take you off so we can, uh, we can get signed.